made alive in Christ. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms of Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable richness of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. All right, as we jump in, my friend Dana, who read that passage, he, he said, this is the most important passage in all of Ephesians. So I said, thanks for uh, no pressure there, Dana. No pressure. Uh, for the sake of today, I don't know if you ever, you see this little logo on your TV if you're trying to adjust the uh, display. You know, you go to the menu and you're trying to mess with the, with the picture of your TV. But you'll see this little logo, right? This little logo just simply means contrast, right? That the whites are whiter and the, the blacks are blacker. And it kind of creates this contrast, right, on your television screen. And we see this idea of contrast show up in all different types of area in our lives. In the famous uh, Leonard Cohen song, it's talking about the secret song that pleased uh, the Lord that David played, right? And he says it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, in the major lift, right? In music, if you're familiar with music, minor notes are kind of more the sad, dark sounding notes that contrast with the major notes, right? So sometimes if you have a song that's all minors, you're like, this is depressing, this is a dirge, right? But there are also songs that are just all major, right? And it just feels like, just way too happy, right? But it's the minor and the major that go together that make this beautiful contrast, right? Think about this in terms of our lovely state of Ohio. I am a diehard Ohioan. I don't, I don't, if you like to go to Florida or California or somewhere else, that's, you do your thing, right? You'll find me on the soil of Ohio, and I love Ohio. There's nothing necessarily gonna kill you about Ohio, right? We don't really have hurricanes, we don't get that many tornadoes, don't really have earthquakes, don't have like uh, the, the Midwest snowstorms like you do in uh, those cold places, like I can't think of what those states are called. What are those states called? Minnesota, yet we don't have really any animals that are gonna kill you. We don't have rattlesnakes or grizzly bears or things like this, right? But Ohio, it's a little gray, but relatively it's a safe place to be. But what I love about Ohio, which is what we all also hate about Ohio, right? Is that the beauty of the contrast of these seasons, right? We are about to head into fall time. We all love it, we all get a pumpkin spice, we all drive around Cuyahoga Falls National Park because we see this beautiful season unveiling, right? But we all, we all hate the 15 months of winter, right? Where it's just gray and it feels like it starts sometime in October and it sometimes ends in May, depending upon the year, right? It's just this long, dark, 
kind of bland gray season, right? But you, this is what I love about Ohio, and you know this just as much as I do, that we hit some some certain time in February where there's a random day that gets to be 60 degrees and we all got our flip-flops on, our car windows down, right? It's almost like this pre-pre-spring. But in Ohio, when we finally get to spring, the 15 minutes of spring that we have, we all feel it, right? The trees are opening up. Springtime flowers up the street is open. Our ice cream places are open. Up in the up in Bath, that house that has the two lions, they take the tarps off the lions. It means that springtime is here, right? And you can just feel it, and you see the contrast in Ohio, and I love it, right? As we look at the story of God, we see this contrast, this this dark to light all through the story of God, light to dark, law and grace, holy, God's holiness up against our sinfulness. There's this, this already nature of our faith, but there's also this not yet things that are still to come. We see this contrast. And I don't think there's many areas that we see this play out in our culture all the time. And you may say, what do you mean, Aiden? We see contrast all the time. You got different political sides, got all kinds of things. In our world, I think that we see a lot of polarization, but not a lot of contrast. Sometimes polarization is two sides thinking they're the, the light side. Just pick your, pick your topic. But contrast is seeing the depth so that we might see the light. It's seeing the pain so that we might see the healing. It's seeing the darkness so that we might see the beauty of the light. It's this contrast that, that shows us our need, but also shows the glory and if we don't embrace in, in the story of the scriptures and the story of Jesus and the gospel, what we want to look at in Ephesians today, this passage is such a beautiful, powerful picture of contrast. If we don't embrace the contrast of our sinful situation, then the beauty of the gospel will just be a belief system. It'll just be something that we try to sprinkle into our already okay lives. And if you don't have contrast, what you end up having is just gray where we aren't in need and God isn't that great, where our sin isn't really that bad and God's saving grace is not really that beautiful. But when we, when we see our need, our position apart from Jesus, we start to see the beauty of the cross, the beauty of his grace all the brighter. Today, I want to just pray that we might, as Ethan said last week, have a mental apocalypse. That his apocalypse is this kind of revelation, this unveiling, right? This pulling something back from our eyes that we can see clearly. And I pray that we would have a mental apocalypse this week to see God's grace, that we might see the depth of our need and the beauty of God's grace. And so for the sake of today, what we want to look at is this picture from death to life, this contrast of death to life and what that means for us in a couple different ways. Ephesians chapter 2, we're in Ephesians chapter 2 today. It says, As for you, you were dead, dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, ruler of the kingdom of the air, and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. It says, All of us also once lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. It's a heavy passage, and let it be. Let it be heavy on your soul today. You're like, I don't really like the wrath stuff. I don't really like what he's saying. Let it be heavy. That we are dead, that we are separated from God. It's an interesting thought. And maybe it's a modern thought. I don't know where you are with your belief in God. But many of us, maybe not all of us, but many of us think if there is a God, 
whether it's the God of the Bible or not, there's some deity, some force, some universe that, that runs everything. It's interesting. We have this disposition that whoever or whatever God is, he's probably fine with us. Like we always assume that like whatever this being is, is he likes us and he firms us. And he's, he, we're cool with him, right? We just got to kind of figure out our life to, to make him happy and he wants the best. Like that's, it's an interesting thought, right? That there's no longer a, a fear of God, which doesn't just exist in Christianity. I think if you went throughout our planet, throughout time to different tribes and different belief systems and different religions, you'd just be like, hey, is the deity who controls, is he just pretty chill with us? I'm not sure that that would always be the case, right? I'm not sure that our disposition is, we cool. And perhaps maybe it's with our, our scientific and technological discoveries and that God becomes less and less other. And we feel like, well, you know, we can kind of explain everything. So he's, if there is a God, we kind of got him figured out, right? And whether it be Google or the Weather Channel, we feel like we kind of get our answers. And so our understanding of God as holy other has just diminished. And it's an interesting disposition for us to be in C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity, which if you haven't read it, you have just questions about faith. It's beautiful and wonderful. He talks about this idea of natural law and if there's a creator, and he kind of puts it in perspective that if there is some force, some, some God, how do we really think that we, in, a, in, in our sin and in our difference and in our attitude towards other people and in our laziness and in our self-centeredness that that it's really like gonna go great if we bump into each other. C.S. Lewis says, this is the terrible fix that we are in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all our efforts in the long run are hopeless. But if it is, then we are making ourselves enemies of that goodness every day. If we're just being honest with ourselves, why do we think that we're, we're so benevolent to the greater world and not ultimately self-centered, right? He said, we're making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And so our case is hopeless again, right? And as we look at our condition in light of God's holiness, as we come back to the scriptures, right? Paul says that we are living in the realm, that in our deadness is what Ephesians, what Paul's saying, that we are living in the realm of the world, the flesh, and the devil, what the church has historically called the three enemies of the soul. Now, we, we talked about this about a year ago and just these, sometimes we're not sure who our enemy is. And if we don't have an enemy, we'll start making an enemy out of anybody, right? There are in-laws or the other political party or other people that I work with. We start making enemies, but in our deadness, Paul says there's these powers that are at work. And he, see, he puts all three of these in this passage. First, he says, we followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work. This is Satan, the accuser, the devil, the evil one. Jesus says he's the father of lies, that when he lies, he speaks his native language. We've said this before, but the primary way in which Satan operates is through lies. And we know this to be one of the most detrimental aspects to our lives because if somebody is lying to us, then we have no concept of the truth with them, right? We've, if someone makes a mistake, if someone fails, then we can kind of navigate that failure. But a lie, you don't even know where to start. And Satan primarily operates in lies. We see this in Genesis 3, right? That there was this lie that was peddled to Adam and Eve, to mankind. There was this lie that you can be like God. That God is holding out on you and you can substitute God for yourself. You can be like God. You can see like God. And, and he has blinded our age by convincing us that he doesn't exist. That's why some of you, you may be watching and you're nodding. You're like, yes, Satan. Oh, he's at work in the world. I see him here and here and here and this thing. 
But if we really were honest ourselves, we don't believe in demons. We don't believe in the, the actual power of Satan. It just feels like magic, right? There's an old movie that says the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he doesn't exist, right? There's a question as we think about this operating in the dead state and this contrast of a dead state is what is this lie I'm believing? Paul goes on and he talks about this. He talks about we lived among gratifying the cravings of our flesh, right? The flesh the, the devil plays to our already sinful desires. It's easy when we sin and we fall into something to, to blame the devil. The devil made me do it, right? And we can minimize our own sinful nature that's at work within us, right? We talked about this over the summer. We talked about the, the fruit of the spirit versus the acts of the, the flesh. And our flesh is ultimately our desires that are self-serving, that are self-gratifying, that in the end have me in the focus. And Paul says in, in Galatians 5 that the, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, all about me. Impurity, about me. Debauchery, about my feelings. Debauchery. Uh, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies, right? That all of these are centered on me, my desires, my almost animalistic uh, dispositions. That the flesh, that the devil tells lies that plays to our already sinful desires. And we see this kind of collect and get normalized into a sinful society. That we see what these, these patterns of the world, these ways of the world that are opposed to the ways of God. And please don't hear me sound like some hellfire and brimstone preacher that wants to point the finger at the world. But what happens is that in our deadness, these things get normalized. And if you look at our window, like, how is it going? When we put our, our identities as number one, when we put financial gain as number one, our own personal happiness as number one, our immediate needs as number one, what does that do to, to other people? What does that do to our, our planet? What does that do to our own souls, right? It disintegrates away because we are following the patterns of this world which are centered on me. We are dead people under the influence of lies, following the ultimate God of our feelings, of our preferences, denying uh, the one true God's invitation into his truth, into his way of being human in this world that he created. And what happens is we get to the end here and it says, we, like the rest, in our deadness, separated from God, we're deserving of wrath. Not something that we usually talk about. Not something that we feel comfortable talking about, the wrath of God. Right? Like, it's just something we don't feel comfortable talking about. But God, this is so important. God's wrath is always tied to his justice and to his love. We just think oftentimes it's out of place because we think we're a lot better than we are because we don't see the contrast. Man, you get a, you get a mama, you get a mama who you're messing with their babies, you're messing with goodness, there's going to be some wrath, right? Because in the, in the great story of scripture, in our history, God is renewing, he's restoring, there's this invitation into new life, into new humanity. And when God makes all things new, He's not letting the riffraff into his new and good creation. And you won't either. It's why you lock your doors at night. And it's why many of us want to talk about what we're going to do if someone comes in our house. Why? That we're going to experience our wrath. Why? Because we're protecting. Because of our sense of justice. Right? And God is no different. 
that in our sinful state, we want to rip apart his good creation. And his, his invitation to us isn't do better, but it's a, do you want to be made new? We're going to look at this today. We look at the, the state of our own sinful flesh, the lies of Satan, are the patterns of our world, our spiritual deadness, the God's impending wrath on our sin. And it feels pretty bleak. It feels pretty dark. Read through the Old Testament. You're like, this is not going great. And what we see throughout the scripture is we see two words that change everything, and that is, but God. But God. He does not leave us in that place. He doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't say, figure it out. You messed it up. But God. We see the contrast from dark to light. Look at verse 4. Paul says, but, many translations say, but God. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, He made us alive. We see the contrast. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. Not when we misbehaved a little bit. Not just when we did a couple things we shouldn't have. Well, I'm not perfect. When we were dead in our transgressions and our sins, it is by grace, God's grace, that we have been saved, that we have relationship, that we have been brought to life. It's by his grace. And God raised us up just as he raised Christ from the dead. Spiritually, in one day in our new bodies, he's raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, in the age to come, he might show his incomparable incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus. You're like, I'll take a couple couple drinks of that. Do you see the contrast? And we don't begin to see the depth of his beauty until we see the depth of our need. Jesus has come to bring life. He has not come so you could check a box and float off to a cloud one day. He has come to bring life here and now into the full one day. In the Gospel of John, we see, we see this all through the New Testament. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have life. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's, that's Satan. He comes to lie. He wants to steal, wants to kill, wants to destroy what God is doing. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the life. John 17, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Eternal life isn't just one day living forever when we die. That's not all that it is. It's a spiritual reality that we, as Paul is saying, have been made alive through the resurrection of Jesus. And that when we follow him by keeping in step with his spirit here and now as we partake in the spiritual reality here on earth. It's the life that Jesus has invited us into. The life of life abundant. But the lie that we were told in the garden. That Satan continues to peddle, plays to our flesh, that gets normalized in materialism and in sexual escapades and in control and in power. The lie that we have been told is that you can find life apart from Christ. It's going to take a little bit more effort. It's going to take a little bit more experiences. It's going to take a change in spouse because this one isn't doing it. It's going to take a change in location because Ohio isn't that great. It's going to be change in your abilities. It's going to be a change in everything. Then you'll find the life that you're looking for. 
But the story of the gospel shows us that it is life with Christ, life in Christ, life through Christ, where we find that we are truly alive. And my fear for many of us is we're like, that sounds beautiful, but I don't think it's true because I believe in Jesus. I marked the box, but my life feels the same because we believe that our salvation in Jesus is mentally agreeing with the theological statement and then doing whatever the heck else we want for the rest of our lives. And that's not what Jesus has invited us into. One theologian named Shane Rosenthal says, I think I got a slide for it here. The key thing that we need to realize about the way Jesus is revealed is that he's not presented merely as someone who can help us get access to eternal life. He's not a magic key that opens a door, but rather he's actually presented as the source of life itself. Right at the very opening of John's gospel, we're told all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In other words, Jesus is Yahweh, the great self-existent one. This is why conversations about, we would, we would exclusively believe that Jesus is the way, truth, and life. That Jesus is the way. But we often get off on the wrong foot because we believe that there's some abstract heaven and we got to find the key. And oh, look, I found it. It's Jesus. Jesus isn't the key to heaven and eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. He has come to give us life, life with him, life abundant, because he is the life. Jesus is the, the water that never runs dry. He is the bread of life. He is the great I am. Now, I know this all sounds very the theoretical or conceptual or spiritual, but this motif is so important that we get a hold of it. Because, because the spiritual life and death is of utmost importance. Because as Dan said, we are either in Christ or we are not in Christ. <laughs> Jackie Hill Perry said, she opens up her podcast and often says, What's up, saints and ain'ts? We are either in Christ or we are not in Christ. Not because these people are good enough and these people aren't good enough. Oftentimes it's because the saints have recognized how, how dead we are apart from Jesus. And we've recognized our need. It's actually our brokenness that points us to Jesus. But we are either made alive or we're dead. We're either raised in Christ or we remain in our deadness. Now, for the if you're listening and you're a follower of Jesus, we read a passage like this, and then in our lived experience, sometimes we're like, I know that this is true. Raised the life in the heavenly realms, seated with Jesus, all these magical, amazing things. But man, it doesn't feel like that in my life. And I know there's a TV preacher or some guy in cool sneakers telling us that, like, it's just, how do I... What does this mean for me here and now? And it becomes a struggler for the follow of Jesus because whether I, I, I try to keep in step and try to live a certain way, I often find myself being pulled back into these patterns of the world and the flesh and the devil. Look at how Paul says this in Romans though. We, we cannot separate, we cannot separate the spiritual reality from a lived experience. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? For many of us, we're like, I agree with these things, but, and I know I'm going to get to heaven when I die, and that's great, and I'm really glad that's secure, but I'm just going to kind of do whatever I want here, because I don't know. I sinner saved by grace, so whatever happens, happens. He says, we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can us who, who have seen this contrast, have seen the darkness to the light, be like, that's amazing. I'm going to hang out in the darkness, right? He goes, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. That's the picture of baptism. Next week, 17th, if you haven't been baptized, we'd love to have that conversation with you. It is this picture of I'm laying down. I am, I am dying to my old way of life, and I am being brought to new life in Christ. 
And I'm doing it before the church because there's accountability that I want to walk in the newness of life with my family and with Jesus. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I would underline that, to walk in the newness of life. We've been invited to walk in the newness of life into our aliveness. Scriptures call this working out our salvation. What has been made true spiritually, that we begin to follow Jesus. This is what discipleship is. Following Jesus as a disciple of Jesus is not like a secondary option if I've, you know, prayed a prayer. But this spiritual reality works itself out as I follow after Jesus. And quite frankly, invite others to follow me as I follow Jesus. Think about this picture almost as a marriage example. My wife and I, in May, coming up here, will be married for 10 years, right? Married for 10 years. We were kind of partial high school sweethearts. I don't know really how that works. But we, 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 we got married in 2014. And on that day, Pastor Dan, sweating, married us. That day, we were married, sealed, done, ring on the finger. I get so much, so much trash talk for this never being on the right finger. But we were married that day. We were married that day, signed, sealed, that we are either dead spiritually or we are alive. And we acknowledge by faith our need for Jesus. When we, when we give our lives to Christ, when we accept his free grace, saved. We don't have to like go on spiritual probation for a couple months till we get there. We are saved, done, settled, ring on the finger, married. But I tell you what, when I got married almost 10 years ago, I've spent the, next, the last 10 years and I will spend the next however many years the Lord gives me on this earth becoming a husband walking in the newness of my marriage, right? You know how this is, you get married and you're a young dude, you're, you're still like a boy in a lot of ways, right? The wife makes you a man, gets you in shape, right? And you start to realize you get married, like, oh man, I'm more selfish than I realized I was. I wanna shed this. Man, I'm more self-centered, I have my preferences and my way to do things way more. And as I walk with Sarah, as we are married together, I don't want to stay the same. I don't want to be like, well, I'm married, so you can't leave me now. I'm still going to do whatever I want. That'd be silly. That'd be silly. If that's how I want to live, then don't get married. But I made that decision. This moment, married, and now I want to walk in this life. As I leave that altar that day, I want to go from just being a boy to a husband. Parts of me are dying and parts of me are becoming more alive because I'm walking in the newness of this relationship. And what Paul says in this passage is this, this reality from spiritual death to spiritual life plays out a couple different ways. One way it plays out is we go from works to grace. Our default disposition is what do I got to do to be okay? That's how we think about everything. What do I got to do to be okay? That's our human nature. But there is this grace that, that encounters our hearts as we look at this contrast that plays out. Look at what he says. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Many of you have heard this a thousand billion times and it can become stale to us. For others of you, maybe you haven't, I would underline this in your Bible. And I would pray if you're a follower of Jesus that you have, might have a mental apocalypse, that the Lord might in a new way unveil the truth and depth of this grace, that that contrast would get even brighter and brighter, that we would see our need for his grace. It's so easy for us to operate uh, from work. Some of you grew up uh, in a religious background, in a, in a certain tradition where you felt like you just had to earn God's favor and God doesn't like you that much. And this may be a reality for you, right? This, this kind of religious, uh, works-based righteousness. You spent your life trying to go to Bible studies and trying to be a good person, trying to tithe enough to earn God's good graces. 
talk to many of you, just talk to someone this week. That this passage is what turned, this is what God uses mental apocalypse for you to see his grace. That there's no amount of thing you could do to earn God's favor. Have you ever thought about how small that makes God? If you could just get your act together for a couple months that you, the creator of the whole universe is just like, just do a little better. Like how small is God to us? And some of you, some of you wrestling with sin in your life and every time you fall down, you're like, I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to change. And you you make this promise to yourself and you make this promise to God. And I I, I promise you, if if it's just out of the sheer willpower, I'm just going to get enough good works to get to God. It's not going to work. And you will burn out and you will leave. You will be done with all this, right? And others of you watching, you're like, I didn't grow up in a religious background. Honestly, the whole God thing, figuring it out, I don't really feel that weight. I don't really feel like I have to please God. I'm not sure what I think about God. But I would recommend, I would, I would, I believe that we all, regardless of whether it's religious or not, we feel this weight to prove ourselves to somebody by what we do. Maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's, a, maybe it's you in the past, but you've got to prove yourself to somebody. That we all have this need to be a person who can justify their existence and it just takes on new forms. Uh, David Zoll has this amazing book called Seculosity. And it's this whole concept that maybe religious numbers are going down if you look at the polls. But our religious adhering to workspace righteousness still exists. He says, we may be sleeping in on Sunday mornings in greater numbers, but we've never been more pious. Religious observance, religious observance hasn't faded amidst secularism so much as migrated. And he says, we have the anxiety to prove it. You may not feel like you have to work to get to God, but you have to work to be enough. A good enough mom, man enough, valuable enough, interesting enough, disciplined enough, funny enough, maybe, maybe given the current cultural uh, climate, aware enough of the real issues, right? that we have to be busy in order to make sure everybody thinks we're valuable. If, if you ask someone what they're up to and they're like, you know, I'm just hanging out. You're like, are you the laziest person I've ever met? Do you have a life, right? Because we feel like this busyness justifies us. If, if we're a parent, our kids' behavior, their outcome, their grades determine if my parenting, if my value, if my enoughness is justified. For many men, we justify our existence based off our value in, in contribution at work. At, at oftentimes the expense of our families, right? That it is the way that we justify ourselves. If we are a hard enough worker, if we can get enough position in our jobs, that is how we justify ourselves. It is based off of our works, right? And oftentimes in this internet age, that we have to make sure that everyone knows that we are interesting enough. So we talk about our travels, we curate our profiles, right? Talk about all the unique things that we're into so that we can communicate how unique we are so that people might see our value. It's all saving ourselves by our works. Our religion has just taken new forms. We worship our kids. We rehearse the spiritual practices of rushing around and heavily breathing at how busy we are. We sacrifice our families on the altar of the workplace and we yearn for our final resting place, the golden shore of retirement where all of our dreams will come true. Do you remember during the, when the pandemic first started when we were all in lockdown? Now, I know this only lasted like a day and a half, maybe a couple days, but there was this moment where everybody was inside and there's nothing we could do. We, we, we couldn't get to work, we couldn't prove ourselves, we couldn't do, we almost just had to stay inside. And if you're honest, there was a moment where you're like, nobody's expecting me to be at their house, no one's expecting me to show up, no one needs anything from me. I guess I'll just 
watch Tiger King and stay at home. There was a mo- and then real quickly we're all like, I gotta prove how important everything is by showing everybody what side I'm on, but there was a moment where we didn't have to prove ourselves to somebody. And for a moment you might have felt, and maybe not, you might have felt this, I feel free for a moment because nobody's expecting anything from me and I don't have to prove myself to somebody. And if religion in, in, in general forms, whether it's including these secular forms or not, religion in general is the idea that I have to ascend to a deity. That deity might be me. That deity might be the approval of somebody in my life. That deity may be God himself. But the Christian faith is not about an ascent to a deity as much as it is completely predicated on the deity's descent to us. And this is where we see grace. Man, I've... Grace is not just a theological concept. Grace is not just a word we pluck off the tree and we're like, that's a cute one. Everything in our relationship with God is predicated on grace. Everything. A.W. Tozer says, As mercy is God's goodness confronting human misery and guilt, so grace is his goodness directed towards human debt and demerit. It is by his grace God gives merit where none previously existed and declares no debt to be where one had been before. We can never know the enormity of our sin, nor is it necessary that we should. What we can know is that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. David Zoll uh, says this, Broadly speaking, grace can be understood as God's unmerited favor towards human beings, his one-way sacrificial love for sinful men and women who deserve anything but it is a gift with no strings attached. Grace is the answer we receive in Christ to the question of God's disposition towards troubled people like you and me. We often experience grace in such terms. By being loved when we feel unlovable, praised when we deserve reproach, rewarded when we should be punished. That grace is oftentimes surprising. That we are oftentimes surprised by grace because we didn't get what we deserved. And God's grace towards us is what the entire gospel, what our entire life in Christ is predicated on, is the grace of God. Think about the prodigal son story that Jesus tells, that he runs from his father. And when he eventually comes back to the father, he's like, let me just stay on the outside. Let me just, let me just live in one of your barns and I'll just eat some leftover corn in the field. Like, don't. And then the father runs towards the son who had turned his back previously on him. It was unexpected, right? For a while, there was a a friend I used to talk to and walked through life, made some decisions, and this decision led to this decision and kind of found himself underwater and struggling. And he had to have a conversation with with someone he loved, and he was just so scared of how this conversation was going to happen. But he was met with grace. That he was... He was surprised by grace because the response that he received in light of all his failings and decisions was not one he deserved. That grace removes our need to prove ourselves. Grace removes our need to exhaust ourselves for approval. Grace allows us to live freely into what God has for us. And grace gives us the freedom to surrender and let parts of us die. A couple weeks ago, we interviewed our friend Jake on here. And he told us his story of, of addiction and recovery. And in there, at one point, he just surrenders. He surrenders and he's like, all right, Lord. Lord, just, just take whatever you need. And he said, what I didn't know is that God basically said, I'm going to kill a part of you. And I'm going to bring you back. That grace allows us to surrender. Now, oftentimes, I think when we we talk about uh, grace, I think we talk about this tension of grace and works. And it looks like this. Like, we could be scared of grace. Like, if we tell people too much about grace, they just won't care about anything. They'll do whatever they want. Maybe. Maybe. 
But if we just preach works, will get burned out and they'll leave. And so oftentimes we feel like there's this balancing act. Give them a little bit of grace. Jesus loves them, but you still got to. And that can be the tension, right? And sometimes we talk about the gospel. We talk about grace. We sing songs about grace. And we're like, okay, God loves me. There's nothing I do to separate. But then we talk about following Jesus and what that looks like in our lives. And what does it look like to shape our lives and disciplines around Jesus? And that feels, it sounds to you like works. And you're like, well, which one is it? My friends, there's a different picture. You need to hear this. It's not, it's not this balancing act. Because if we, if we just preach you gotta earn, earn God's grace by your works, that neuters the gospel. But if, if, if we think that it's just God gives us grace and he doesn't care what you do, doesn't care how you respond, doesn't care how you live, we neuter both, right? We, we cheapen both. But we don't hold back from preaching grace. I, I want my, my son Camden to know how much he's loved. I want him to know that there is nothing he could do to, for our, us to not love him. And what that does when he gets it. Now, I can't control if he gets it or not. I can't control if the people I talk to. I can't control if you're going to get grace or not. But I'm going to preach it. Because if we can get a hold of this, if, if we have this mental apocalypse to get a hold of grace and there's a security of grace, then the picture changes and we are free to let works come out of us. I want my son Camden to be so, and Colby too, both the kids, to be so, so overwhelmed by my love and grace for them that they, they are confident and free to live out in this world, to live in response to that, to love people to serve others. And when we truly get grace, grace is the oxygen we breathe. It's the platform for everything that exists in our life. That grace is God's disposition. It's the atmosphere in which we exist. It's the oxygen in our lungs of our spiritual life. It's everything. All is grace. And as the magnitude, weight, holiness, wrath, and majesty of God grows, grace grows in proportion. And as grace grows... What Paul is saying in Ephesians 2 is that our works come from that. They're not in tension with each other, like we got to balance them out. But as we double down on the grace of God, the gospel of grace, that God is on a cross and it's surprising to us and we don't deserve what he's given to us, that works come out of that. And this is the way that, that he says it. He says, for we are God's handiwork. We are trophies of God's grace created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared for advance in us to do. That we go, we go from an employee to a partner. Oftentimes we can view God in this almost employee relationship, right? And it plays out a couple different ways. Almost in our sinful state, we want to earn God's blessing by what we do. And many of us, we get mad when things happen in our life that don't feel like they're in congruence with with how we've been serving God. That's why oftentimes when someone gets sick or something terrible happens to somebody who follows and loves Jesus, it's like, how does that person walk this journey? They've, they've loved God so much. Why would God do this? We go back to this employee mindset. God, I don't deserve this, right? We can see it show up that way, right? But oftentimes also we almost feel like we can kind of put our head down and just kind of avoid God because we, we don't feel like we want to get what we deserve from him. We feel like we're an employee that hasn't been clocking in on time. And so in the same breath, we can just put our head down and try to make God happy because he probably doesn't like us that much. But part of discovering our life in Jesus, walking in the newness of life, walking from death to life, working out our salvation, walking in step with the Spirit, is stepping into the good works that God has for us to do. Oftentimes, we could think God's grace is just this amazing thing that allows us to do nothing. Wow, that could, that, that nothing could be further from the truth. 
I don't love my son, my son, my boys. I don't love them and give them everything and forgive them so that they can just sit around. That's not what grace is. But I, I want to love them. I want them to be secure. I want them to know that nothing that they do will separate them from my love. And that in the security of that love, that they may live lives that are for the sake of other people that they may love others, that they may one day grow up and whatever the Lord leads them, that they would be secure in what the Lord has for them. I don't want them just to sit around. Oftentimes we think grace is just a magical wand that just makes everything great. But grace is God's disposition. He invites us to follow him. He invites us into good works. Because we all know the experience when someone doesn't just say, you're fine, just stay there, I'm gonna do the work. But when they invite us into something, and that's what God invites us in. He has people he wants us to serve and to love and invite along on the journey to participate in the kingdom with him. Think about Jesus when he comes to his disciples and he says, follow me. He doesn't say, just believe some stuff about me, it's okay, just sit around. He invites them into a journey that challenges them, that kills certain parts of them that were sending on themselves. And what they see is they see the work of Christ in the lives of these people. And in contrast to their own failings, when Jesus rises again, they have this apocalypse, they see, and then we read the book Acts, they go. They go boldly because the grace of Jesus has worked in their lives and now they got, Jesus has some works that he's prepared for them to do. We've said this before, Dallas Willard says, God is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Lord, I deserve this. Lord, how could I get this diagnosis? I've been serving you for so long. How could this be the way that my kids play out? I did everything right. I didn't get what I deserved. Grace is opposed to earning because earning is an attitude. But it's not opposed to effort. I want to follow Jesus. And I think oftentimes the rub that happens is, is we, we are thankful for his grace and forgiveness of sin and how he loves us regardless of what we do. But we don't see the life he invites us to as grace. We don't see, we don't see encountering him in the scriptures as grace. We see that as, as something we got to do. We don't see sitting with him in prayer as grace. Oh, I got to pray too. I got to do these things. He invites us into a life. And it, and it takes effort. It, it, it takes effort. And those things are not, these are things that come from his grace. Because one author says it this way. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And so we, we, as a result of God's grace, when we see the beauty of this contrast, we become partners with God, co-laborers with God, heirs with Jesus, ambassadors of this, of this story. And the question, I love the way one pastor, Tim Mackey, says it, is he asked this question. I want to ask you this question today. What is the new creation work that God has given you? That will be a display of, it'd be God's, God's artwork in the world today. What are the works that he's prepared for you today that are going to be a picture of his grace to the world? Because he has given you a story. He has given you people. He is giving you a situation that he wants to bring life into. And it's by his grace that he wants to use you. Pray with me today. Jesus, we love you. And we can just begin to scratch the surface of the depth and the majesty and the wholeness of your grace. I pray that you might give us a, a, a mental apocalypse, that you might unveil our eyes to see your grace in a heavier way today. And that, Jesus, we might walk in the newness of life that you invited us into.
that we might that we might organize and arrange our lives in such a way that we might let your fruit grow in our lives. Jesus, we want to be people who are compassionate, who offer the grace that's been offered to us. We want to be people who, who see people in their brokenness and offer them life and grace. We want to be people who are humble. We want to be people who lay aside our pride. We want to be people who aren't attached to the things of this world but are attached to you. And so, Jesus, I pray that by your, gra- by your grace, you might help us to, to live in sync, live in light of that. Jesus, help us to see our, our condition apart from you that we might see the beauty of your grace all the brighter. It's because of Jesus we pray. Amen.